This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics in the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. I hope you all enjoyed our new opening theme song. Uh, We've spiced things up a little bit, and we have a fantastic guest this week. We're going to discuss uh, liberal education. What does it mean to get a liberal education? How has the concept evolved over time? And how can we do better as a democracy in providing a liberal education to our students and to ourselves as citizens? We're joined by an old friend and someone who is a, a prolific writer on the topic, uh, as well as someone who has written a brand new book that I want to recommend to all of you. Uh, His name is Jonathan Marks, and he is a professor of politics at Ursinus College. He's a blogger for Commentary Magazine, and he's the author of an earlier study of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, The Perfection and Disharmony in the Thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He writes extensively now, as I said, on issues of education, particularly the nature of higher education. And uh, he lives in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, where his university is located. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Am I the first guest to appear after the newer, spicier theme music? You, you are. You are the new spicy guest for the new spicy theme music. So that's exciting. And I just want to say, this is a common mistake, it is Ursinus College. I apologize, Ursinus College. And, Our and mascot I, is the bear, so just think Ursinus and you can't go wrong. <laughs> Jonathan, I, I will never forget now. I will think bear and you and Ursinus College at all at all times. Very good. Uh, before we turn to our discussion uh, with Jonathan and his, his new book, which by the way is titled Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Uh, before we begin our discussion, we, of course, have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? That Man Believes Astrology. Let's hear it. It is a curiosity that man believes astrology, despite an eon of understanding and religions come and gone. We look up at the stars some nights, inevitably forsaken, and wonder which one went wrong or which one wished for a different song. The man in the moon, the poet in his grave, they write the same elegy, though mourning a different age. For the one who's seen an apple and wondered why it gleams and upon the brilliance of its seams, only write before they are forgotten to conclude the apple's rotten. For too many lives within a chapel of calculated parabolic curves, a numeric mind, a pile of nerves, who die their unhappy deaths and repent their math in final breaths. It is a curiosity that man believes astrology, that we might climb the heights of industry on cliffs far above the ancient sea, and yet still watch with a twinkle in the eye for constellations to align, the Milky Way to cry. The boatman on the sea below, the robber baron in all his heft, They whistle forth the same defiant tune, though they hum in different clefts. Faith and reason never toppled babble, leave language for the rough and rabble. In our browbeaten thresholds, we find a way to speak, a rhythm or a poetry, soliloquy or a squeak. Neath the sound in the heavens, as the glaring twinkles meet, we shall chart our course through desert winds, 
a chorus of rabbit's feet. I love the uh, wide-ranging references there, Zachary, and particularly the boatman on the sea. Uh, what is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the ways that uh, reason often fails us and the importance of, of not just superstition, but, but feeling and those things that we, can, we can't describe, but that we spend our entire lives searching for a way to describe and, and, and somehow classify. I like that. The limits of reason. Jonathan, uh, you've spent so much time thinking about liberal education as, as a scholar, as a teacher, as a writer. What, what do we mean by this concept? We obviously mean something different from liberalism itself. What does the concept mean when we talk about liberal education? Well, uh, we mean a lot of things, but liberal education, as I conceive it, aims at the shaping of reasonable people. Um, liberal education has something to do uh, with education for freedom, that's the way we typically think of it, and to be governed by unexamined prejudices, the argument goes, is to be uh, less than free. The two concepts that seem central to that to me are reasonableness and freedom. So let's maybe in investigate them a little bit further also. What, what does it mean to be reasonable in your, in, in your analysis? You have a wonderful chapter on this in, in your book, in fact. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because colleges and universities often say that they're teaching something called critical thinking. And what I mean by being reasonable is not so much, you know, the box of critical thinking tools you receive upon graduation. Those are important, but, you know, shills, hyperpartisans, your social media frenemies, they all have those tools also. And when you kind of want to reach out and grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, be reasonable, you don't mean, can you please leaf through um, a logic textbook, right? Reasonable people uh, think, along with an educational and political writer who inspires this idea, um, John Locke, that there cannot be anything um, so disingenuous, insincere, so misbecoming, unbecoming. Anyone who pretends to be a rational creature as not to yield to plain reason and the conviction of clear arguments. This is a kind of human being who considers reason an authority rather than as a tool um, to get the better of others. When you're asking somebody to be reasonable, what you're really saying, I think, usually is, Let's stop fooling around. Let's stop puffing ourselves up. Let's stop hawking our wares. Let's stop boosting our tribe. And let's see what valid conclusions we can draw from what we know. And if we don't know enough, what more um, we might need to know. So, so as I understand it, you see critical thinking as more a form of sophistry, of developing tools to make arguments rather than finding a basis for assessing truth in some respects, right? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I think, though, that critical thinking, the way that it's taught, is taught in, in roughly that way, how, how to win an argument. And, right. you know, often it turns out that that means poking holes in other people's arguments, um, which I think we're very good at doing. Right, We look at the prejudices of other parties as if we had none of our own. Um, we turn 
our reasonable skills on the arguments of other people, but we can't be brought, this is Locke again, fairly to examine our own principles. And the alternative then, the reasonableness, the, the, the focusing on, on something beyond critical thinking, what does that look like in practice? Right? I think we can all understand what you're criticizing. It's the, if I might say, it's the Senator Ted Cruz, I'm going to find some argument to explain why I did what I did when it isn't, doesn't seem reasonable at all at face value. What is, the, what is the alternative? What does it look like when you're making an argument for reasonableness? Again, you go through this very well in your chapter, and I think there's a lot of insight in this. Well, you know, I, I think there are a couple of ways um, of looking at it, right? One way of looking at it is um, what do we need to do um, in order to try to become reasonable? And then what kind of circumstances is it helpful to be surrounded with when we're trying to be reasonable? Um, and maybe I can try to um, speak briefly um, to both of those. Please, please. Right? So, um one thing I think we need to recognize when we're thinking about trying to be reasonable is that we are partial beings. And I'm going to make you sick of uh, quoting Locke, but we see but in part, and we know but in part, and therefore it is no wonder we judge not right from these partial views. Um, and if that's so, we need to encounter views with which we disagree. We need to encounter people, arguments, experiences um, that are not our own, right? So that, that, that's one thing. We have to be exposed to um, uh, what Locke calls the opposite arguings of, of talented people. We're also seeking what you can call comprehensive enlargement of mind, which means not only being exposed to opposing arguments, but also being exposed to the, the many different ways um, and methods it's possible to get at the questions that are important to us. For example, we're both students in politics in some ways, and sometimes the instruments of the statistician help you with that. Sometimes the instruments of the historian help you with that. Sometimes the instruments even of the novelist help you with that. So that's what you're trying to do, but it, it's very hard to do, right? Zachary's poem, I think, um, points that out in some way. Our reason is relatively weak. Our tendencies uh, toward you know to hold on to our partialness are very strong, and so it's helpful to be surrounded by a community that thinks of the praiseworthy and the blameworthy above all um, in terms of our reasonableness, of our capacity to follow the argument where it leads, and our willingness to follow the arguments where they lead. So how do we read literature and the great works and the great minds of literature without making the same assumptions and taking the same conclusions as in the past? How do we make this old literature that has been read for centuries, how do we make it modern and uniquely relevant for our lives? So I, I think that old books are almost essential for us to help us recognize the unexamined premises of our time and place as unexamined. That's one way in which they're fresh, right? We look back on every other time and place and say, gee, those people were smart, but they were limited by the prejudice of their time and place. Good thing that we're enlightened. 
Um, but of course, uh, we have our own prejudices of our time and place. Um, and that's one of the many things that makes us partial beings. So I think that it's important to um, look at um, the best books of the past as far as we can ascertain what's best to perform this function for us. But they are very hard to read. They are foreign, right? And we tend to approach foreign things by reducing them to something we're already familiar with. So we pick up a 2,400-year-old text and think, well, what they're really saying is we should stand up for what we believe in. Or we might find a reason to reject or ignore it. So what's strange about it, I mean. So I think we have to fortify ourselves when we approach these books with patience, humility, a sense that, that we don't know. And that's possible we can get some help um, with our questions here, right? And, and questions are important to us. So, for example, at Ursinus in our core and in our first year seminar, we bring books to bear on questions like, what should matter to me? How should we live together? How can we understand the world? What will I do? And I think that if we go into the work of reading these books with the sense that they might contain wisdom, then we'll have a much better chance of learning from them. Is there a way to read literature still paying attention to things like gender dynamics and race without losing the beauty and the importance of that literature as a whole, without getting too critical of the work? Well, I, I think that... Um, you know, the, the short answer is yes, but if we're going to look at these texts with um, patience and humility, as I suggested, we can't operate under the assumption that what we think about gender and what we think about race um, is the lens through which we should look at the book and make a determination as to whether it's acceptable or not, right? We, we might get there eventually. We may decide to reject elements of the literature we read as um, foolish or mired in their time, but we have to at least begin by taking seriously the possibility that what we think about gender and race is itself, at least in part, um, a prejudice. To speak just of the American tradition, it might be useful for us as we think through whether there should be monuments um, to Abraham Lincoln to read, for example, Frederick Douglass's oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln, which may in some ways show us a more nuanced way of looking at Lincoln than the ways in vogue at the moment. So sometimes these books, I think, can teach us something about those matters. Right. It's a great point, Jonathan. I think certainly we have a tendency, regardless of one's politics, and I think it's an undemocratic tendency to come into a work looking for a certain argument, whether we want it to be an argument of greatness or of degradation. And we impose that on the work. And I think what you're arguing for is, is at least what I think historians would call a deep reading of the source, right? And you, you, you make the point about following the argument through, following it to where it leads us before we pass judgment. Is that a fair assessment of, of, of your sense of how we should read these important works and avoid what you call the, the, the jump to usefulness? Well, yes. I, I, I mean, in some sense, you know, we're looking for something that is of meaning and significance to us. So, so we can't avoid hoping 
I think that the book will be of some use to us in gaining some wisdom, but that wisdom might consist in learning, for example, that the problems that are most important to us are, are not the only problems or questions we're thinking about. So we might change our mind about what counts as usefulness um, as we read. And it's when we enter into the reading of you know, really any work, but maybe especially an old and therefore strange work of literature or philosophy, we have to go in, not with some reading tool that we've got, like I'm going to perform a Marxist reading on the text, or I'm going to perform a psychoanalytic reading on the text, or I'm going to view the text as a compendium of errors that we need to get away from. All those make the assumption that we don't really have much to learn from these texts. And in that sense, you know, if we have gaining something from them, a sort of usefulness in mind, we have to have an openness to the possibility that our conception of what's useful might itself be partial and defective. Right, right. No, it, it, it's often my suspicion that that people who have um, very strong frameworks for understanding the text are not spending much time reading the text. They're simply pasting their framework on the text. And, and that, of course, can be a problem, and that can occur from, from many different directions. How do you choose your text? You, you really speak very eloquently about the wisdom and the power that comes from reading texts from another time and another place. You have a wonderful section where you talk about how in your teaching, you found actually that older texts are often better at addressing the concerns of students than newer texts. I've certainly found that myself, Jonathan. So how do you choose which texts to read? Because no one, not even a scholar uh, like you and I, can, spend, can, can read everything, right? So how do we choose? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's some idiosyncrasy um, in our choices, always. What I look for uh, is partly influence. I look for texts that um, can help us understand the world that we live in today. So texts that I suspect um, had some kind of formative um, influence in our way of thinking about things. So I might read um, Machiavelli, or John Locke, for example, because I think that um, the ideas um, that you find in those texts go some way toward explaining uh, the kind of world that we live in today. Um, but you also look for alternatives to the matter in which we live today, which, which, which does mean reading texts from outside the modern liberal democratic tradition as well. I do try also to choose texts that um, are in conversation with each other um, in some way or another. So I don't think it's necessarily better um, to read a Western text than to read Confucius. Um, but these Western texts are also often in, in conversation with each other. So you can begin to see how an argument is made in response to some other alternative that's been rejected and put aside and that might be worth re-examining to understand what the costs and benefits of that kind of decision are. You know, the, the book is called The Conservative uh, Case for Liberal Education. I think that conservatives do tend to look at, at what's been handed down to us or recommended to us, right, as um, texts that may be particularly fertile 
um, to look into that have some value that transcends the particular time and place that they came to be in. And that's where we start. That doesn't mean we accept those recommendations. I mentioned the book, for example, that Jefferson looks at Plato and says, if you take away from him his sophisms, his futilities and incomprehensibilities and, you know, and, and, and what remains, uh, what's going to be on our, our list of books is probably going to differ. Um, but I think the sense that there are books that can speak to us as human beings uh, even from very different times, places, cultures, as long as as you have that in mind, it doesn't matter so much whether um, you choose to read Plato or Xenophon, who's now out of fashion, but Jefferson probably would have preferred um, to Plato. Right, right. It does seem that one of the points you're making that I think is crucial for thinking about democracy is that it's it's less significant to choose the text because of the politics of the text, it's more important to choose the text because of some deeper humanity and deeper wisdom. It's an old, it's an old argument, I think, right, that your mentor, Alan Bloom, made. As, as I think about our discourse and think about civic education today, which is a topic I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about, how you put that into practice on a day-to-day basis, is, it seems to me, is, is very complicated. And it's, it's, it's something you begin to talk about in the book. I wonder if you have more reflections on that, Jonathan. Well, I, I think the relationship between liberal education and civic education is complicated. I've talked about Locke a fair bit, but you know Socrates is in a way the patron saint of liberal education, the, the one who dispels um, the arguments and prejudices that people present him with. But Socrates wasn't a particularly good citizen in any obvious sense. Uh, He only served when he had to. He deliberately avoided public life. He tended to encourage other people um, to avoid public life because how can you be engaged in public life if you don't know um, what justice is, if you don't know um, what the best polity is? Um, You know, he didn't organize marches. He didn't produce commentary on the Peloponnesian War. Um, So... You know, there's a sense in which um, the inquiry that Socrates engages in isn't at least obviously useful, civically speaking. Um, uh, And of course, you know, Athens killed Socrates, but modern liberal democracies tend to think that um, it's a good idea um, to have a place, colleges, universities, and maybe a few other places where inquiry, uh, not the dispensation of wholesome political truths, is central. And in a way, I think they can't both be central, right? You can't on Monday say, I'm looking into the fundamental question as to whether the contemplative or active life is best. And on Tuesday say, ha ha, just kidding. What we really need to do is organize for action. I can't in economics class on Monday say, you know, I think there's a real question as to whether it's rational to vote. And then on Tuesday, say, ha ha, just kidding, get out there and vote. And I, I think there's some value to that. Whatever civic education is in a liberal education context, it can't take the form of Sunday school. Uh, it can't take the form of proselytizing. One form it can take, and I don't want to go on too long about this, but there is some overlap between the virtues 
that you need in a community of inquiry and democratic virtues and habits, I think, right? If we're trying to inquire into something together, we need um, a certain kind of humility, a sense that because we're partial and don't know, we have to listen to what other people say. Um, We shouldn't be burn it to the ground hyper-partisans. We need a kind of patience to try to understand what others are uh, trying to say. We need a certain courage to put forth even dearly cherished views out there to be scrutinized. And we're engaged in a kind of community where we're trying to set aside, at least temporarily, party, fashion, uh, even interest for a kind of common good, which consists in this inquiry um, in the direction of a truth that we all want. Um, so I think there is some some overlap between the virtues of community of inquiry and virtues that are desirable in a democracy. Um, I have a lot more to say about this, but maybe I'll at least pause there. It's a great start, and I, I do want to follow up, Jonathan, because one of the things I'm hearing you say, and and that came to me from from your wonderful book as well, is that perhaps there's too much emphasis in civic education on engagement, uh, and and you know one of the reasons we do a podcast is to try to engage people around issues. But what actually really I think makes the podcast an interesting form is that it allows space also. For the credit, for the the sort of the, the deeper thought, the withdrawal from the world, and and I think that's one of the tensions here, right? If liberal edu- education requires the contemplative space to go deep into a text and deep into a dialogue, an, an ancient and contemporary dialogue, and the pressure for civic engagement pushes us to get involved without the time and space for the thought, there does seem to be a bit of a contradiction there, one that we often don't address. Is being reasonable, is that is that a way to work through that contradiction? Well, you know, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a tension, maybe more than it is a contradiction. And, and, and let me see a few words about that. So I, I think although many colleges, including my own, have civic engagement as, as a piece of their mission, it is um, a tension because, you know, as I said, if we're saying, well, we don't really know what the answers to the fundamental questions are. However, right, we actually know that it's important to um, be engaged. That is a tension. It can be a fertile tension. I, I love programs that we have here um, at Ursinus, like the Bonner Leaders Program, which focuses on service, and Project Pericles, which does focus on civic and citizen engagement, those programs in a way can be quite helpful in bringing questions that sometimes might seem abstract. You know, what is service? Uh, What is a a good society? What kind of help do people need from me? What kind of human being do I have to be or to be helpful? Those questions are somehow made more concrete and high stakes, you know, if you're engaged in kind of practice, and as long as those practices are um, engaged in in a spirit, an inquiring spirit appropriate to liberal education, I think there can be a quite fertile relationship between those two things. I, I also think that um, universities can't be altogether Socratic. Socrates was not being paid 
<laughs> right? We, on the other hand, um, are receiving, you know, gobs of money from parents and governments and so on and so forth. And so, you know, in some ways it seems fair to suggest that um, we owe something. And, uh, you know, how can that something we owe be consistent with a spirit of inquiry? Well, I think one thing we can say we owe is is putting or giving pride of place in our inquiries into uh, American democracy and its health and well-being. That's something that it's worthwhile for scholars to inquire into, for philosophers to inquire into, but also for citizens to inquire into. Uh, because how are citizens going to be able to make sensible judgments about when an official or government has overstepped its bounds if they haven't inquired into American democracy, its principles, its health and well-being. It's exactly where I was planning to go in the next question, Jonathan, is, you know, at some level, one of the most useful, if I can use that term, useful elements of your book and your analysis is it reminds us how in, in working through this tension between contemplation and engagement, one of the best things we can do is to go back to our foundational texts in the United States, uh, the Constitution, of course, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Letters, et cetera, and, and actually read them to try to understand rather than what, what generally occurs and what we can watch when we're uh, watching, for instance, an impeachment hearing is the cherry picking, right, where Alexander Hamilton seems to be quoted for every possible position for every possible purpose. Don't make me break into song. <laughs> exactly. I was, I was hoping you would. <laughs> and, and I think that's I think it's such an important insight that you bring to us that there's something different between reading a few snippets of the Federalist Papers to substantiate your argument or actually spending a lot of time to work through the text and understanding the reasoning and, and the reasonableness about democracy that, that, that they provide to us. Yeah. Well, well one of the things about um, our politics is, is it does make a kind of assertion that it's capable of withstanding rational scrutiny. Uh, Jefferson says um, in his last published letter that the unbounded exercise of reason will do nothing but good for the spread of American or enlightenment principles. Um, so in that sense, I, I think that our polity at least claims to have a very high tolerance for rational scrutiny, which means that the act of a sort of contemplative person, the act of just a good and sensible citizen are, are drawn together in some ways. To be a good citizen is in part to reflect on the principles and, and practices of American politics. So bringing this to a close, Jonathan, we always do like to close on a positive, hopeful note. Um, that's the engaged part of our contemplative mission. What can we do very practically at universities, but even beyond as citizens, to um, encourage reasonableness in this sense? Because I think one of the powers of your book is that we're in an unreasonable moment, filled with unreasonableness of all kinds. So Rather than simply staking a position and defending it ardently, you're arguing we need to do something different. We need to actually move to a more reasonable culture, more contemplative culture, a culture that's willing to follow the argument rather than defend the position. 
how can we do that for a practical matter? How do you do that as a, as a scholar and as a, as a teacher and as a father? How do you think about that? Well, at least starting with the university setting, we have to be mindful of the level of difficulty that we face here, um, not just in our society at this particular moment, um, but more broadly speaking, we are uh, in, in many ways partial beings. Um, we are um, in many ways apt to have our understandings distorted by, by fears, um, sometimes even by hopes, even though hopes are nicer. And I think we have to try to recognize a, a couple of things and then try to put that into practice. You know, uh, speaking of a narrower form of um, irrationality, some cognitive errors that we make, Daniel Kahneman, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, says, well, we're not really very good at uh, checking ourselves with respect to the mistakes we make. Uh, he suggests that we need to be having, so to speak, conversations around the water cooler, I think is the way he persistently puts yes. it um, yes. in the book about the kind of cognitive errors that we make. And so I, I think the first thing that we need to think of at a university, and it's very difficult to do it um, at big universities, but even in small universities, we tend to get a, a little siloed, is that, you know, we, we can't take for granted that we're a community of reasoners, right? We, we have to talk about it, right? Talking really does help, right? In the statements we make both to ourselves um, and publicly, we need to remind ourselves of reasonableness and how difficult it is um, to be reasonable. We have to exhort each other. We have to put forward in understanding, again, of uh, what's praiseworthy and blameworthy that, that, that accords with a community that's trying to be reasonable. So I think it is a, a, a cultural problem. There's, there, there's no great policy solution for this. It's something that, that we do in our communities, whether um, we're in an academic community um, or in some other kind of, uh, of community. So Jonathan, if I could ask you, what do you say when someone, often out of goodwill, says something nonetheless unreasonable? Stop being unreasonable? I mean, how does, because it's a very difficult to break into our our closed and, and provincial ways of thinking that don't seem that way at first. It's very hard to break into that, isn't it? Well, I think it is very hard to break into it. In some ways, it's probably easier college or university setting than elsewhere. Um, and, and I don't think I, I have a magic bullet for this, except to say that um, Zachary started out by reminding us um, of, of the force of things other than reason in our lives. And, um, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis, I think, I, I think we really have to be mindful of that, not, not in a manipulative way, but just understand that when we're dealing with our, with our, with our neighbors, th that we have to try to understand where they're coming from, not simply in terms of, um, you know, the argument that they're making, um, but also why they might be attracted to that kind of argument and try to enter into um, you know, sort of empathetic 
um, relationship. The um, I mean, here's here's how I I, I try to um, I try to um, to put it, um, or or maybe to put the opposite end of it. I, I think we have to assume, and I think it's reasonable to assume that most people aren't going out there in an attempt to be unreasonable. Right. Um, so if you point out a difficulty in an argument that may lead them in a direction of questioning their convictions, that's distressing. Right. They're not just uh, none of us, I think, or, or, you know, sort of proud ignoramuses who, who just don't care. Right. Whether we have good reasons for thinking what we think or not. So that, that too, is a motive that one can work with. We shouldn't assume that the people we're dealing with are closed to reason. So you have to be mindful of the obstacles to reason, and that's that's part of what Zachary reminds us of. And um, even of things um, in our lives that, that that are good, that shouldn't be thought of as a mere obstacle to reason. But we also um, ought to be aware uh, of the sense in which you know, but most people can answer and I think wish to answer to the call to try to found their convictions on um, more rather than less solid ground. That makes a lot of sense. It really, it really does. It's, it's actually a very reasonable position you're taking on reasonableness, Jonathan. Uh, and it's refreshing, I have to say. Zachary, your poem started us out. And as, as Jonathan so well has, has put it, your poem captured in some ways the, the difficulties and the challenges here in, in being reasonable as human beings. Has this discussion helped? Do you see a way forward for uh, your generation of young, rising thinkers? I know you've been frustrated yourself at times in, in discussions about a variety of issues at, at the unreasonableness of your fellow well-intentioned young thinkers. Does, does this help? I think it does help. I do think there's this constant tension that has really gotten worse in recent years between those who can't read a work of literature without throwing it in the wastebasket afterwards and those who can't read a work of literature without being immediately disgusted by the idea of studying literature at all. And I think that we've gotten to the point where what you read and whether you read or not has become political. And I worry that that that, that, that 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 will create a, a gap in our understanding of our world. But I also think that that those are the extremes and that really in the middle, our, our generation is really getting to see the consequences of both of those extreme decisions. And, and hopefully we can come to a, to a more reasonable conclusion. That's a wonderful thought. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. And and I think, uh, Jonathan, it's the power of your book. I really do uh, want to encourage listeners to read your book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Uh, and I'll come out and say I'm not a conservative myself, but I found Jonathan's argument, as I hope you've all heard a taste of here, very thought-provoking and, and actually very helpful in working through this tension that Zachary articulated so well. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights with us. Uh, th- thank you, Jeremy and Zachary. I really appreciate it. And, and Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always, and your wonderful questions. And most of all, thank you to our uh, listeners for joining us again on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. 
The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.